Hello, and welcome to the No Good Poetry Podcast. Each week we talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of poetry. This is episode 86 with... Joseph Makos and... Joseph Bievenu. This is the good, bad, and the ugly, isn't it? There's some ugly shit out there, kids. Let's make the world safer for poetry. All right, so we got a little bit of a different kind of episode this week. All right. What kind of episode would that be, Joseph? So I'm going to tell you a poetry story that probably you haven't heard of before. And you get to go on a little journey with a with a audience and hear the story that maybe you've never heard about. And it's kind of an interesting story, I think. Okay. All right, you ready? You ready? No. <laughs> But I think you're going to like it because newspapers feature very heavily in this story. Well, isn't that something? As we're here overlooking O.C. Haley on a Friday afternoon, it's pretty nice out. And a big stack of newspapers behind us. There's a big stack of newspapers behind us. And and it's kind of nice out. And I can see sort of like the system coming in. The clouds are coming in. Yeah, it's going to get cooler again. It's going to get cooler. It's going to rain tomorrow. Yeah. All right, 20th February, 1844. Okay. This is background. Where we're got, we have to meet our main character first. Reuben Andrew Riley and Elizabeth Marine Riley were married in Port Union, Indiana. And they were some of the early settlers of the Midwest. Shortly after they married, they moved to Greenfield, and Reuben built a log cabin. And at that time, Greenfield only had 300 people living there. And it was a small settlement surrounded by forest and marshland. And in 1849, their third child, who's going to be our main character here, was born. James Whitcomb Riley. Does that name sound familiar to you? It does. It sounded kind of familiar to me, too, but I didn't exactly remember who he was until I started getting into this. And I don't remember exactly who he was either. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's a poet. Sure. But obviously, but uh, I don't know. Yeah, so so James's dad, Reuben, was a lawyer, and he was one of the leading citizens in Greenfield, and he was elected to the Indiana House of Representatives the year before James was born, and he became friends with Governor James Whitcomb, and that's where James got his name. That's why he's James Whitcomb Riley, named after the governor of Indiana. So James was a pretty imaginative kid. He liked exploring the woods and imagine it filled with magical creatures that his mother told him all these stories about. Giants, trolls, fairies, and ghosts. Like in a lot of rural areas in America at the time, there was still this like belief in magic and mysticism and all this, this stuff. And her other son, John, described the spirit wrappings that were always heard on the headboards of beds and bureaus and tables when their mother Elizabeth was in the house. Just so he's got this imaginative stuff from the beginning. He also uh, liked to like to perform and he would perform at the back of the grocery store and recite jingles his mother wrote and he would mimic his friends and sing sing songs through a coarse comb covered with paper. (laughs) And then when he was older, his friends and he started putting on shows in barns uh, and their show was a circus minstrel show. And Riley would get up on a chair and pre- pretend to be a barker 
and make fun of people in the audience and say, accusing one of them of being the fat lady or accusing another one of being the living skeleton and so on. And then one of the friends would play a ringmaster, one would play a clown, and one would play the injured rubber man. The injured rubber man. Yeah, like India. I think like India rubber, like like stretch the stretchy guys, you know, like. Uh, really? Yeah, yeah. They put on these little shows, and then Andrew got a pair of stilts, and he would perform somersaults and handsprings and all kinds of stuff. So he liked being an entertainer from a young age, right? Okay. But he also liked literature from a young age. He and his friends would also, their other favorite pastime was to gather at the shop of this English immigrant who was a shoemaker in the town. But he had a passion for books, and he would tell them stories, and he would read to them from Robert Louis Stevenson and Charles Dickens. And James really, James Riley really liked Charles Dickens, and he and his friends formed a secret boys club that met in a cellar under an old barn, and they each had a code name based on a Dickens character. Uh, Andrew was Fagin, right? Yeah. He also had an uncle, Martin Riley, who was an amateur poet, and he would sometimes get his poems published in the newspaper. And Martin would read him and his brothers stories from Arabian Nights and Baron Munchausen. And then when Hawthorne's Tanglewood came out, he read all of Hawthorne's Tanglewood to them. So, you know, James really liked to read, and he could read long before he ever went to school. So, you know, getting our literary stuff back. Yeah, and he, and, but also that shows that he had aptitude and imagination and... When you're read at when you're read at a young ga- when you're read at a young age, he was read at a young age. Yeah, 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 and that's spe- especially back then. We're talking like at this point, it's like what the 1850s. Yeah, so that was 18, unusual. Right before unusual. Civil War. Yeah. Okay. Or maybe the Civil War was. Maybe at this point, I'm not sure how old he is. Maybe it's begun. I don't know. We're gonna we're gonna come into that. His father his father fights in the Civil War. But yeah, so he liked that. But he was not a very good student. Uh, he was always doing things he wasn't supposed to do in school, and he got whipped all the time by the teachers. Sure. Uh, but it might have been he was maybe bored because it was like that kind of teaching at the time where it was just rote memorization, and you just had to parrot back what was going on. So that might have been part of it too. But he did not like school, and he didn't attend very regularly. So later on, there started to be this kind of this practice of just hiring like a private teacher and sending your kid there. So then his parents tried that because he was so bad at school. And mostly that didn't work out so great. But his last teacher, Leo Harris, caught him reading uh, yellowback novels. He had them slipped into his textbooks. <laughs> Do you know those, like those yellowback novels? Sure. They were like these cheaply printed, but it was all just like these sensational story yeah. kind of little little novels. Yellowback novels. Yeah. So like a proto, like something that was before something, before something that was before comic books, before graphic novels, like an yeah, early kind of that sort of magazine thing, right? type thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They were like really these like cheaply a... printed, and they were always like yellow, this yellow paper. So they called them yellowback novel. Wow. So this they this, hardback, this teacher no they were I think they were, I saw some pictures they're like kind of softback looking things um, I want to see what it looks like yeah I mean maybe we can look, find a we picture of the sure. notes cool but his teacher caught him doing that 
and he kind of scolded him for it, but he also, you know, what he really told him was that, you know, you should be reading real literature, not these stupid yellowback novels, right? And he noticed that that James had this kind of facility for literature and reading and this thing that that was something that he was drawn to. He might not have been so good at math and all of that, but he was good at he was good at reading and he was good at literature. So he uh, so he kind of said, "Look, you need to be reading real stuff." And later on, Riley considered him one of his first literary friends and inspirers. But James didn't attend school very regularly, like we said, although that was kind of normal for the time because a lot of kids would just miss school to go help their parents on the farm or with chores around the wherever. So it was kind of common at this time for kids to not attend school very regularly. So he didn't finish grade eight until he was 20. What? Yeah, but apparently that was a little unusual, but it wasn't that unusual. And most of his friends had already like started working and things. But he was twenty but he when was he 20. finished the eighth grade. Yeah, man, that's... but it's not like most people went to more school after that. You're done at eighth grade, right? Like that's it. Most people. I mean, you could be twenty and finish college now. Yeah, but I mean, but that's the thing. Like people didn't attend school regularly necessarily. Although I think he was a uh, uh, particularly. Because it does say a lot of his friends had already been working for a while. That they'd finished school and had been working, and he was still still trying to finish. Wow! So it was pretty late. So he's still living with his parents at this point. His dad had fought in the Civil War, and he came back partially paralyzed. So they didn't have the money. He couldn't run his law practice the same as he used to, and they didn't have the amount of money they they did in the past. So he really was, like, relying on the sons to do a lot of things around the house. And, I mean, they had, like, kind of, they raised livestock and things, too, like I think a lot of people did at the Homestead. time. So there was a lot of stuff to do, you know. Homestead. Like, yeah, yeah. So James starts getting into it with his dad all the time about that. Like, he doesn't really like that he's telling him to do all this stuff all the time, and he doesn't really do all of it. So they're always getting into it. And then uh, his... When his father found out that he was interested in poetry, that just made it worse because his dad really thought that was a dumb thing to be doing and that he wasn't going to make any money from it and told him he needed to stop wasting his time on poetry. Sounds familiar. You know? Yeah, familiar story, right? So, and then his mom dies of heart disease kind of out of nowhere. So that's his, he's like, screw this. I'm leaving. I'm moving out. So he finally leaves home. I think he's like 21 at this point, right? But he, what is he going to do? He doesn't have any, any marketable skills. So he tries being a house painter for a while and a Bible salesman. <laughs> I wonder what that would be like <laughs> to be a door-to-door Bible salesman. That's like a Flannery O'Connor story or something, I think. Wow. Uh, but he didn't make much money doing that. So he apprenticed himself to a painter and uh, he opened a business in Greenfield making signs, hand-painted signs, and maintaining signs, right? Because I guess he had to always repaint those things, right? So they looked fresh again. Uh, and he did all right with that. But his er- and his earliest known poems are verses that he wrote for the advertisements for his customers, right? He would put 
little poems on the on the yeah. signs, right? And he started writing poetry in Sirius at this point, and starts and he mailed them to his brother who was living in Indianapolis. Um, and his brother kind of acted like his agent, and he started offering his poems to newspapers in the area. And the Indianapolis Mirror picked them up. They didn't pay him. They just, but they did print them in the paper, right? So his first poem was featured in March 30th, 1872, and he used the synonym Jay Witt. And he wrote more than 20 poems for the newspaper, and one of them was even on the front page of the paper. Wow. That's crazy to think about, like. What year? You is could this? have a. This is 1872. Wow. Okay. After the Civil Front War. Front page of the paper, right? Wow. And which pa which paper was it published in? This is the Indianapolis Mirror. Lovely. Right. Okay. But he's still kind of dissatisfied with the amount of money he's making as a sign painter. So he's like, I need to find a way to make more money. <laughs> so in 1872. Dr. Samuel B. McCrillis rolls into Greenfield with his popular Standard Remedies medicine show. And working for McGillis, McCrillis was this sign painter named James McClanahan. So Riley joined McClanahan in this traveling, this traveling show, right? Uh, and they entertained crowds with music and verse, and then they tried to sell him these tonics. But, you know, so their program was them, like, he and he, McCrillis would get out and hawk the bottles of, of this tonic, and then there would be these musical interludes where McClanahan and Riley played the banjo and guitar and read poems, and, and James started writing lyrics for this show and all this stuff. But they're selling snake oil, basically, you know, they're just going around traveling. Hey, but, they're selling snake oil, <laughs> but they're minstrel, they're traveling minstrel shows. Yeah, but but one time he even goes so far as he claimed that he had been cured of blindness by using one of these tonics, and that was part of his act. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's terrible. That's a terrible thing to think. All right, so he travels the Indiana countryside selling his snake oil, and he started calling himself the painter poet. That's kind of lame. Really? Yeah. <laughs> But he's doing this, and he's making a little more money on this than he was doing the sign painting. Uh, and he keeps sending poems to his brother, and his poems given the newspaper still publishing some of his poems out in Indianapolis, right? So, his next career move is to start an advertising business. He and McClanahan leave the traveling medicine show, and they start an advertising business together. The Riley and McClanahan Advertising Company and they would paint billboard size advertisements for passerbys to see on the sides of tall buildings and barns in the area, right? So later, they got they were successful enough. Two other painters joined them. They had four of them doing this. And they changed their company's name to The Graphics. And it was pretty financially successful. The Graphics? The Graphics was the name. That wasn't taken How do you spell yet. spell that? Just like Graphics, like The Graphics. That was it. That was the whole name. No one had taken that, that name yet. Are you kidding me? Yeah, apparently not. What year is this around? This is like uh, 1873 or something. Wow. In Indiana. In Indiana. But 
you know, but he still wanted to make it with poetry. So he's still trying to write his poetry and he's kind of, even though the business is doing well, you know, that's not enough for him. So he travels to South Bend where he takes a job at the Stockford and Blowney painting versus on signs for a month. Okay. And some people say the reason it was only a month, he had a bit of a drinking problem, so I think uh, he was maybe showing up drunk a bit too much is why the job didn't last longer. So he got, he left this company that was fairly successful because he's like, oh, I can go do this other thing and at least paint verses on the signs, but then he loses loses the job real quick, right? So he comes back to Greenfield, and he's like, I'm going to be a writer full-time now. I'm going to be a poet. So he submitted his poem entitled At Last to Danbury News, which is this Connecticut newspaper. And the editors accepted the poem, and he was paid. It was the first time he got paid for one of his poems. So he's excited about this. And he started submitting poems regularly to editors at newspapers and magazines all over the place. Um... But he was not having a lot of luck, but Danbury News was still taking some of the stuff, but unfortunately, the newspaper shut down in 1875. So, he didn't know what else to do. He joined another traveling tonic show that was run by the Wizard Oil Company. Oh my god. (laughs) The Wizard Oil Company? Quite a name, quite a name. But he wasn't done. He wasn't done. He didn't give up on poetry yet. So he sent a letter and samples of his poems to Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Uh-oh. Because he liked Longfellow. He thought he was the greatest living poet, and he was like, maybe if I can get him to understand that I'm a good poet, I can get somewhere on this. All right, so Longfellow replies to him and says, I've read the poems in great pleasure and think they show a true poetic faculty and insight. Okay, Longfellow talking some bullshit. I so, guess that's enough. I guess that's enough. I guess that's enough. James is ecstatic. Yeah. He starts carrying the letter around with him, and he uses it to get some things published in some newspapers. He takes the letter, like he'll submit things and show him the quote from Longfellow, <laughs> and it kind of works, right? He gets um, he gets some poems. In so he some gets his first book blurb. Yeah, basically, right? He gets his book blurb. <laughs> So the Indianapolis Journal buys some of his poems, including Song of the New Year, An Empty Nest, and a short story called A Remarkable Man. Um, And the Anderson Democrat, which is another paper, saw Riley's poems in the Indianapolis Journal, and they offered him a job on the paper in 1877. And he joined the paper, and he worked as a normal reporter, gathering news, writing articles, and helping set type on the printing press and all that. Wonderful. Um, this is Riley, Riley talking now. He said, I collected the local news, canvassed for advertisements and subscriptions, and made myself generally useful. I used to turn the advertisements of the regular advertisers into catchy doggerel, and this feature proved immensely popular. So he was a marketing guy. Well, I mean, I think it sounds like at that time everyone kind of did everything, right? They seem like they got him doing a lot of stuff. But, yeah, but he's he's taking the ads that they submit and say, and making them into little poems, right? Yeah. Which is, that's cool. You yeah. Know? That's Back when still you can do the, that, yeah. It's yeah, still yeah, in newspapers. Yeah. Like no, that. we see that all the time, right? Our little poem ads. So that's what he's doing. So he's doing this, and, and he's he's happy doing this, but he still wants his poem to have a, poems to have a larger success. 
And he's still trying to submit to all these magazines, and it's not going well. And he's convinced that it's because he's from the Midwest. And he's convinced that all these Eastern publications don't want to publish anyone that's born west of the Allegheny Mountains. And that his lack of success was not because of the merit of his poems, because of his lack of a name, right? And because of not being out east. Sounds about right. So, as Riley tells it, there was a man on the rival paper at Anderson who was constantly making fun of my claims and stamping me as a poetaster. And I resolved to show him that I was just as good a poet as the writers whom he praised so highly. All right, so now our story really begins. Okay. <laughs> that was just background. That was just background. On August 2nd, 1877, the paper in Kokomo, Indiana, the dispatch. I have been to Kokomo, Indiana many times. Kokomo. So this is in Kokomo. I've so been there the many Kokomo times. The Kokomo newspaper is yes. called the dispatch. This article appears. I'm going to read you the article word for word here from the from the 1877 Kokomo dispatch posthumous poetry a hitherto unpublished poem of the lamented Edgar Allan Poe written on the flyleaf of an old book now in possession of a gentleman in this city the following beautiful posthumous poem from the gifted pen of the erratic poet Edgar Allan Poe we believe has never before been published in any form either in any published collection of Poe's poems now extant or in any magazine or newspaper of any description. And until the critics should show conclusively to the contrary, the dispatch will claim the honor of giving it to the world. That the poem has never been published and that it is a genuine production of the poet, poet who we claim to be its author. We are satisfied from the circumstances under which it came into our possession after a thorough investigation." Calling at the house of a gentleman on this city the other day on a business errand, our attention was called to a poem written in the blank flyleaf of an old book. Handing up the book, he observed that the poem might be good enough to publish, and if we thought so, to take it along. Noticing the initials E.A.P. at the bottom of the poem, it struck us that possibly we had run across a bonanza, so to speak, and after reading it, we asked who its author was when he related the following bit of interesting reminiscence. He said that he did not know who the author was, only that when he was a young man, that is, he was a young man when he wrote the lines referred to. He had never seen him himself, but heard his grandfather, who gave him the book containing the verses, tell of the circumstance and occasion by which his grandfather came into possession of the book. His grandparents kept a country hotel, a sort of wayside inn, in a small village called Chesterfield near Richmond, Virginia. One night, just before bedtime, a young man, who showed plainly the marks of dissipation, rapped at the door and asked if he could stay all night, and was shown to a room. This was the last they saw of him. When they went to the room the next morning to call him to breakfast, he had gone away and left the book, on the flyleaf of which he had written the lines below. Further than this, our informant knew nothing, being an uneducated illiterate. The poem is written in Roman characters and is almost as legible as print itself, although somewhat faded by the lapse of time. Another peculiarity in the manuscript, which we noticed, is that it contains not the least sign of erasure or a single interlineated word. We give the poem verbatim just as it appears in the original. Here it is. Wow. All right, so let's get the poem. That was the poem. Leonani. I don't know. How do you think you say that? That's a really weird name. 
Leonani. It's a weird name. I don't know how the hell he said that. Does seem like a very Edgar Allan Poe name to be to be fair. Leonane. All right, let's try it that way. Leonane. Leonane. Angels named her, and they took the light of the laughing stars and framed her in a smile of white, and they made her hair of gloomy midnight and her eyes of bloomy moonshine. And they brought her to me in the solemn night. In a solemn night of summer, when my heart of gloom blossomed up to greet the comet like a rose in bloom, all forebodings that distress me, I forgot as joy caressed me, Lying joy that caught and pressed me in the arms of doom. Only spake the little lisper in the angel tongue. Yet I, listening, heard her whisper, Songs are only sung here below that they may grieve you. Tales but told you to deceive you. So must Leonane leave you while her love is young. Then God smiled and it was morning, matchless and supreme. Heaven's glory seemed adorning earth with its esteem. Every heart but mine seemed gifted with the voice of prayer and lifted where my Leonine drifted from me like a dream. E.A.P. Wow. So they published this in the paper. Okay. Saying it's poem. Saying it's the lost it's, poem. It's a, it's a lost poem of Edgar Allan Poe that they found in this flyleaf of this book. Maybe. Yeah. Okay. Well, of course, the whole thing is a hoax that Riley made up. Okay, wonderful. So, Riley and this group of friends, they would regularly meet in the evening in the law offices of Captain William Myers to exchange ideas, and this is a quote, incidentally, have a good time. Which I think means that they got drunk. But I don't know. Sounds about right. <laughs> so they would do this every evening, right? Um, every evening? Yeah. Okay. After they got off of work, that's what they would go do. You know, they would go hang out in the law offices together. Um, and among the group was Will Ethel, another of these sign painters that that Riley knew, and Samuel Richards, who was a kind of well-known portrait artist in Indiana, and then Captain Myers himself, and some other was, captain, like from the Civil other, War. He was a, yeah, he was a captain, but now he's this he's a lawyer, right? And that's of his offices, right? So they would do this. So. One day, Riley's all worked up about how he keeps sending out poems and poems and poems to all these magazines, and they're getting rejected and rejected. And so he kind of like half-jokingly says, look, if I just put the name of a famous poet under one of my poems, I could get it published. Right? So, you know, they're all joking around, having a good time, whatever. A couple days later, they're there again, and he seems very nervous, and he pulls this piece of paper out of his jacket, and he says, last night I couldn't sleep, and so I got out of bed and wrote this. So Captain Myers is impatient and says, give that, give that, give that here. And he takes it and reads aloud, and it's the lines of a poem called Leonine, written in the style of Edgar Allan Poe. So the group is enthusiastic and laughing and having a great time thinking it's fun. And Riley tells him he's going to use this to put his theory to the test, that if he had a famous name attached to his poem, he could get it published. And he said he picked Poe because he figured Poe had kind of this reputation for being a joker and he probably wouldn't mind, you know. Uh, but 
So he knew someone who worked at the Kokomo Dispatch. He thought if he published it at his paper at the Democrat, it would be too, too, too suspicious. So he needed to publish through another paper. So he had this friend at the Kokomo Dispatch who liked his poems and was an editor over there. And he told him the idea, and he liked the idea. He thought it was funny, and he's like, sure, let's do it. And so they printed this poem with the backstory. <laughs> Fake news. Fake <laughs> Yeah. So the, uh, the Kokomo Dispatch was not the only paper in Kokomo. There was a, strangely enough, man, that's crazy. Kokomo had two newspapers back then. Wow. But... <laughs> So the rival newspaper, oh, I told you that wrong. All right. was not the rival newspaper paper of Kokomo. I'm wrong. This is an Anderson. So the rival paper of the Anderson Democrat, where Riley worked, was called the Anderson Herald. And they republished the poem the next week, but they added this comment. We expect a rhapsody of jealous censure from the jingling editor of the sheet across the way, and she'll wait with the first anxiety ever experienced for the appearance of the Democrat. We look for an exhausting and damning criticism from Riley, who will doubtless fail to see Leonane's apocryphal merit and discover its obvious faults. As it was, we are led to believe Leonane, to quote from Riley, is a superior quality of the poetic fungus which springs from the decay of better thoughts. So they don't know, but they're ri- they're the rival paper, and they and Riley's the poetry guy over there. So they're like saying he's not gonna appreciate this poem because they're the second one to publish it, right? They don't know that he he wrote the poem, right? So we, okay, so so wait, so explain that a little bit. Just explain that exactly what they're saying. So they're saying the there's they they they're the second paper to print. They pick yeah. up the poem from the Kokomo Dispatch and they reprint it, and along with it they say. We can't wait to see what the what this dumb poetry editor at our rival paper, the Democrat, says about this. Surely he's not going to be appreciate what a great poem it is, and he's going to say something bad about it. Perfect, right? Not knowing that he's the one who wrote the poem, Perfect. right? <laughs> um, so, I mean, Riley has to go along with this, and so he has to write a review for the Democrat about this poem. So this is his from his review. Oh, great. (laughs) Perfect. We frankly admit that upon first reading the article, we inwardly resolved to ignore it entirely, passing the many assailable points of the story regarding the birth and late discovery of the poem. We shall briefly consider first, is Poe the author of it? That a poem contains some literary excellence is no assurance that its author is a genius known to fame, For how many waifs of richest worth are now afloat upon the literary sea whose authors are unknown and whose nameless names have never marked the graves that hide their hidden value from the world? And in the present instance, we have no right to say this is Poe's work. For who but Poe could mold a name like Leonane and all that sort of flighty flummery? Let us look deeper down and pierce below the glaring gurgle of the surface and analyze it at its real worth. Now we're ready to consider... The theme of the poem, one that Poe would have been likely to select? We think not, for we have good authority showing that Poe had a positive aversion to children, and especially babies. And then again, the thought embodied in the very opening line is not new, or at least the poet has before it expressed it when he speaks of that rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore. And a careful analysis of the remainder of the stanza fails to discover a single quality above mere change of form or transposition. 
The second stanza will be a more difficult matter to contest, for we find in it throughout not only Poe's peculiar bent of thought, but new features of that weird faculty of attractively combining with the delicate and beautiful the dread and repulsive, a power that rarely manifests and quite beyond the bounds of imitation. In fact, the only flaw we find which to pick is the strange omission of capitals beginning the personified words joy and doom. This, however, may be an error of the compositors, but not probably. The third stanza drops again. True, it gives us some new thoughts, but of very secondary worth compared with the foregoing. And in such commonplace diction, that Poe characteristic is almost lost. The first line of the concluding stanza, although embodying a highly poetical idea, is not at all like Poe, but rather unlike, and for such weighty reasons, we are assured that the thought could not have emanated from him. It is a fact less known than remarkable that Poe avoided the name of the deity, although he never tires of angels in the heavenly cherubim. The word God is not mentioned twenty times. In further evidence of this peculiar aversion of the poet, we quote his utterance, O heaven, O God, how my heart beats in coupling these words. The remainder of the concluding, concluding stanza is mediocre till the few lines that complete it, and there again the Poe element is strongly marked. To some, the poem as a whole, we are at some loss. It must certainly contain rare attributes of grace and beauty, and although we've not the temerity to accuse the gifted poet of its authorship, for equal strength of reason we cannot deny that it is his production. But as for the enthusiastic editor of the Dispatch, we are not inclined as yet to the belief that he is wholly impervious to the wiles of deception. So that's his response, his review of his... Own poem. His own fake poem. So he, wait, so he doesn't admit, really. No, but he, like, compliments his own poem and partially compliments it, but partially insults it at some point and pretty much says he thinks it's not... It's not Poe. It's not Poe. Yeah. So he just kind of puts it down. Yeah, well, he praises it in some parts, too. I mean, he says... Yeah, he does. He says, you know... It's got certain Poe po aspects to it and praises it in some certain ways, but and gives it has rare attributes of grace and beauty. So he kind of does both, right? Kind of clever, kind of clever, right? So in the next issue of the Herald, that competing paper, the edit, the writer congratulated himself on his fulfilled prophecy and said. True to our prognostication of last week, J.W. Riley, editor of the Democrats, slashes into Leonane in a jealous manner. In a jealous manner? <laughs> he didn't do that, did he? I mean, but they're trying to, like, keep this feud going, I guess. I mean, that seems a bit... <laughs> That's pretty... Instead of, wow, so they, so they try to keep the feud going by, like, publishing some other completely weird tangent. Yeah. So now they're going to kind of defend, they're going to start to defend the poem as being by Poe. I can see this kind of happening. Well, but I mean, I guess this was enough to get it going. So the poem starts spreading like wildfire. And In other places. And starts getting published. Yeah, it's published all over the country. And including major newspapers in Chicago, Boston, and New York. As a Poe poem? Well, they, they present it the way that it was presented, right? Like, we don't know, but here's the story of and that maybe it's an, maybe it's a lost Edgar Allan Poe poem. Some people doubted it. Uh, Willem Cullen's Bryant 
was doubtful. He worked at, oh, I forget, some Boston paper at the time, and he quipped, if Poe really did write it, it's, it's a consolation to think he's dead. <laughs> huh. But, uh, you know, some people doubted it, but there were still article arts after article coming out arguing for it really being Poe's poem. Some by really well-known literary critics. <laughs> and a copy of a newspaper with the poem in it made its way into the hands of the editor of a prominent literary magazine out east. And he heralds it as a literary find of the generation. And that makes it, propels it even a little bit further. Are you kidding me? So, wow. so the Kokomo Dispatch starts getting all these letters from editors of the country's leading magazines wanting to see this manuscript. There is no manuscript, right? He just made this up. He just made that story up. So they don't know what to do. So he gets his friend Samuel Richards, who's an artist, to... They took a copy of Ainsworth Dictionary, which is, is a Latin dictionary, and he watered down some ink to simulate fading, and he got some copies of Poe's handwriting and figured out how to, to kind of imitate Poe's handwriting and, and wrote it in the flyleaf of this dictionary. This is him talking about doing it. He says, To be able to furnish the proof of Poe's authorship in the event of a possible investigation, it was deemed necessary to counterfeit Poe's handwriting. Lithographic facsimiles of a few lines of the author's original manuscripts having been obtained, Richards, the partner in the coalition, who was an expert with the pen, had gone to work diligently, practicing with pale ink on the blank pages of old yellowed books to imitate the chirography of Edgar Allan Poe. Oh my god. So they make this fake manuscript. They make a, they make a fake document. Yeah. And some people come and see it. Amazing. And for some of them, the results were conclusive evidence that the poem was real. Uh... Poe scholar Edmund Clarence Stedman stated he had studied many Poe manuscripts, some real, some forgeries, and the poem found in this old book was as genuine an example of Poe's writing as he'd ever seen. So now it becomes the leading Poe poem example. Well, I mean, I don't know, but people are getting more convinced that this is a real poem, and it's a big deal, right? Like, all of a sudden, they've discovered this new poem by an immensely popular writer, right? So... Even the guy who's a professional to determine whether or not it's Poe handwriting thinks it's real. Yeah, he thinks it's real. <laughs> okay, so there's a Boston publishing house at the time that had A Life of Poe by the biographer William H. Gill that was getting ready for publication. So they write to the dispatch asking to see this original manuscript of Leonine. So they're like, oh shit, this is this is getting really far, like, this is really working. But, and they were getting ready to send it, send this counterfeit manuscript to the to the publishing company, but then they get, they hear a rumor that a writer at the Tribune, who's a rival pa paper to the Kokomo Dispatch, oh, so there is another paper in Kokomo after all. It's just a different one. The Tribune had found out from someone that worked at the Dispatch that this was a hoax and was getting ready to publish a story about it. So they know the gig is up, so they preempt it by publishing in the dispatch, explaining the whole story and admitting that they had hoaxed the whole thing. Uh, 
So they had, so they decided to come clean. Well, they well because they knew if they didn't, this other paper was going to publish it, and it would be better if they just did it themselves, right? Who was the rat? No one knows that that no one knows who who did, but it was someone who worked at the dispatch, told someone at this other paper. Damn it! There was a rat. There were just too many people who knew about it. So if I it guess wasn't it for that happen. rat, we wouldn't know the story. Probably not. I mean, maybe someone would have figured figured it out, but. Um, so, yeah, they were all, they were gonna send this manuscript out, and then this happens, and they had to print an article, uh, you know, admitting, admitting what they had done. Uh, the press was livid. There were all these, these critics who were really angry because they'd been taken in by this thing, and they were, the stuff that gets printed about Rayleigh is pretty cruel. So there's just a sampling of some of the some quotes from some of the reactions of different papers. The New York Post. To get drunk was one of Poe's habits. To leave it in without paying his bill was a thing not at all impossible to him. And to write a poem on the flyleaf of a book was a natural thing for any emotional poet to do. The trouble was in the poem itself. It was so manifestly the work of a man much lower in the scale of intelligence than anybody ever suspected Poe of being, even when he was drunk. The poem effectively sets at rest whatever suspicion there may have been that the author had the material out of which a poet is made in his composition. See <laughs> The Crawfordsville Journal. The verses were written by a young man named J.W. Riley of Anderson, who has obtained a local reputation for writing queer poetry. <laughs> By today's standards, that would be a good thing. <laughs> the Nashville American. If the spirit of Edgar Allan Poe wanders, he will surely pay his respects to the scalp of the Indiana man who brought it out. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you can get away with writing stuff. Like, well, maybe you can, again, get away with writing things like that in the paper. Ouch. The, Nash, uh, the Logan Sport Journal. If Riley could realize an impassable gulf lies between him and fame as a poet, he would be justly punished. Ooh. Baltimore. Baltimore American. The composition is wild enough to have been written under the influence of Egyptian or Terre Haute whiskey. It's safe to affirm that the gin mills of Maryland and the Old Dominion never turned out liquor bad enough to debase the genius of Poe to the level of these dreadful verses. Wow. <laughs> so, they, people were just really bitter when they found this out. And Riley made a public statement, admitted his deception, and he tried to give reasons explaining why he did what he did. Because, like, he was trying to... He felt like there was this unfair thing going on and that if you weren't from the East, you couldn't get your poems published, and that was kind of his idea behind doing it. But everyone just saw it that he was being, a, being this deceptive asshole and, like, trying to... They were not having it. Um, so Riley said about the result later on, It was a very foolish thing to do, and I had no idea of the trouble I was making for myself, and I should never have gone into the thing. To my great surprise, the press of the entire country took the matter up and denounced me roundly for my duplicity and my dishonest efforts to gain notoriety, something to which I never really gave a thought at the time. In consequence, I lost my position at Anderson, and all my friends gave me the cold shoulder. It was in every way the most melancholy experience of my life. 
Well. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, that sucks. But you know what? Strangely, this still sort of propels him into fame afterwards. So people are upset about it, and he has a hard time getting work for a while, but he eventually gets hired by the Indianapolis Journal later on, and he writes this series of poems for them that proves very popular, and he starts writing these kind of folksy poems, and he gets famous for them. What years? So this is, we're now into like late 1870s, right? And he starts going around on the lecture circuit, and he performs his, like dramatic and comedic readings of his poems. Like this is a really popular thing, right? Yeah, I mean, you read about all this in the time period. All these sure. like traveling poets, like sure. going around performing yeah. for and making money doing this, right? So he starts doing well at this, and uh, by 1879, he could guarantee large crowds wherever he went, and tickets to his shows were in high demand. And people came to see what sort of rustic fellow would deliver these homey verses they were reading in the newspapers every week, you know? So, and they found this elegant, urbane man, finely dressed with a watch chain and a boutonniere, who possessed the ability to slip seamlessly into the Hoosier persona. So he could speak like the people in Indiana. Yeah. And about half of his poems were written in the Hoosier dialect. And that was kind of his thing, was writing these dialect poems. And... That created this kind of mass appeal for his work. The simple, sentimental, colorful language reminded audiences of an idyllic time of more natural philosophy and less care. Right? So people liked it. It was this kind of like, kind of hokey thing in a way, right? But then all the Eastern literary critics still didn't like it. They don't like this dialect thing. They thought it was some like insult to the English language and all of that. So he still didn't really ever make it in with them, but he was popular among the people, right? And it was enough to keep getting published. He ended up being close friends with Joel Chandler Harris, who wrote the Uncle Remus things, also in dialect. Okay. And with Mark Twain. Nice. So, and then he eventually published his first collection of dialect poems, The Old Swimming Hole and Leavenmore Poems. There's no E on that 11. 11 more poems. 11 more poems. The old <laughs> swimming hole and 11 more poems. And that was published in 1883. Uh, and it did pretty well. Two of the most famous poems are The Raggedy Man, which is this really weird poem, actually. It's about this, like, raggedy man. Yeah. And about how and how he helps helps around this house. And then the little kid at the end, he's, like, making fun of the kid because his dad's rich, and he's like, you gonna grow up and be like your daddy? And and he's like, No, I'm gonna grow up to be a raggedy man. You know, and that's like the joke of the poem. <laughs> and then his other most famous poem was Little Orphant Annie. What? Which was uh inspired by this kid, Mary Alice, Allie Smith, who was an orphan that lived in his home when she was a child. No way. And it's a four stanza poem. The first introduces Annie, and the second and third are stories she's telling to young children. Each one's about a bad child who's snatched away by goblins because of stuff they, misbehavior they did. And uh, it's like this moralistic poem saying, like, you know, children, you should obey your parents, and or else you're going to get snatched away by goblins, right? 
And it was made into a silent film later in 1918. Called what? Called Little Orphan Annie, featuring Colleen Moore as Annie, who had previously been in another movie based on Riley's work, A Hoosier Romance. And Riley was in the film as a silent narrator. But it was popular enough, the poem was popular enough, that later on, when Harold Gray created his comic... He named his title character after the poem. Little Orphan Annie was named after this Riley poem. And uh, it kind of made sense because it had a similar sort of thing going on, this kind of philosophy of hard work, respect for your elders, all that kind of corny stuff, right? Wow. So Little Orphan Annie is based on Riley. So he ended up being kind of successful. Wow. That's something else. His poem... His, I didn't see it go in that direction. His, I knew that there was going to be some... His poetry is terrible. Okay. But... <laughs> I think. But... Uh, but... Despite this... He did this hoax to try to make himself successful. It kind of backfired, but then it kind of... Led him to this way of becoming famous anyway. Wow. He wrote Annie. He wrote Little Orphan Annie. So maybe, poets, that's what you need to do if you want to be famous. I don't know. Okay, but then there's a really weird postscript to this story. So do you know uh, do you know Alfred Russell Wallace? Uh, maybe. Those three those three name guys, a lot of those ones. Ralph Waldo Emerson, Alfred Russell Wallace. So he's best known, what you probably know him for is he came up with the theory of evolution, like concurrently with Darwin. Okay. Right? And he was the one that if he he had it ready to publish the same time Darwin did, yeah. and he didn't. He just barely was a little after, like Darwin published it first. So, But he had come up with it independently at the same time. So he's this famous British naturalist, biogeographer, author, all this stuff. Very famous guy. So later on, 1893, Wallace gets this letter from his brother in California which includes the, Le the Leonine poem copied out into the letter and says, tells him it was allegedly written by Edgar Allan Poe. But it was like handwritten copied into the thing. He didn't send him an article or something, right? So Wallace kind of was busy and he forgot about it and he never made any inquiry about where it came from, but he just kind of took it from granted that his brother had copied it out of a newspaper or something he didn't know. But it was stuck in his mind, and he remembered it. And ten years later, in 1903, he gets into correspondence with this literary figure, Ernest Marriott, who had written some stuff about Poe. And he tells him about this poem and how great he thinks it is, and had he ever heard of this unknown Poe poem. <laughs> and this is, his, this is Wallace's words. I now send you a complete copy as sent me, and I think you will agree with me that it's a gem with all the characteristics of Poe's genius, while the last verse is most exquisite. It may be considered to be a kind of supplement to Eulalie, inspired by the idea of the loss of an infant daughter after having lost the mother. So he and this literary critic go back and forth. They write about 15 letters talking back and forth about this poem. Oh my God. And Wallace decides to write an article about the poem for this journal. Um, so in 1904, he publishes an essay about Leonine in the Fortnightly Review and reprints the poem. 
and talks about it, and he argues that the poem was written by Poe just a few days before he died, but he has to figure out some way that he's like, why did this poem get to California? So he's like, oh, well, what happened was after he paid for this, paid for his stay at the inn with this poem, uh, that innkeeper must have, this is the right time, so he must have been part of the 49 California gold rush and moved to California and took the poem with him, and that's how it ended up in California, which doesn't make any sense, and just is like crazy, suppositional, weird shit, but that's what he argues in this article. And then, <laughs> so, of course, this, art, this article gets published, and a bunch of readers write in, and they're like, well, no, this was a well-known hoax. James Wickham Riley admitted that he he wrote this poem and it was a hoax like that came out like that was a big deal right like people know about this um but wallace publishes a second article and he doubles down claiming that this is still an Edgar Allan Poe poem and so he writes this other article where he looks at one of the things people sent in and he he says that he it still doesn't make any sense to him because there's all these that it doesn't explain all these things. Um, in this long article, almost the whole of Mr. Riley's story refers to the mechanical portion of the hoax, the peculiar, the peculiar calligraphy, using the old book, the story about the book, and the strange visitor to the tavern, the arrangements for it being accidentally found, etc., etc. In vain we look for any statement for what, whatever as to how he actually wrote it, how long it took him, where he got the name from, a name, I believe, new to the English language, and so admirably suited to the musical cadence of the poem, what was his idea in the poem, and how he obtained the originality of verse, how he reproduced the very rhythm and music of Poe's best manner, how he pervaded it with the weird melancholy of Poe's nature. So now they're... So he just will not admit, even after they're like, they, he, he said this was a hoax, he's still trying to claim, this is, you know, 20 years later, he's still trying to claim that that's actually a Poe poem. Uh... And he goes through and, like, examines the poem line by line. And then there's, like, some differences in the version that his brother copied out into the letter from the published poem. And so he, like, harps on all these things. Uh, and so his claim is that Riley didn't really make up this poem, that there was some original Poe poem as a source, and Riley used that for the hoax to gain some kind of fame. Which I don't, why, that doesn't even make any sense. I guess to like pretend that it was a fake poem, but he really found some new Poe poem and pretended it to be fake so that he could come out and say that he really wrote it and then it would make him. Wow. <laughs> what a weird twist. <laughs> There's no reason to think that this is true, but this is what Wallace is thinking, right? He says, Till we have the alleged proof that Riley wrote Leonine, it seems to me quite as probable that he found it and on the suggestion of a friend made use of it to gain a reputation. Wow. <laughs> so, this is weird, right? So this famous naturalist is now, like, after it's already been revealed to a as a hoax, years later, still claiming that it's an Edgar Allan Poe poem because he liked it so much. Um... In the, la in, in the last of his letters with this critic, he says, The more I consider the matter, the more I'm convinced Riley did not compose the poem. It looks to me very much as if he really got hold of the poem in the form I have it, or nearly, 
that to cover himself from exact copying, he made alterations in words which he might think would make it more like his own work, and the alteration and the arrangement of in lines, etc., so that it might be accepted as a bad imitation of Poe. But the curious thing is why he didn't alter it more. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> this is called cult of personality. <laughs> but, so this seems pretty strange. But Wallace was kind of a weird guy, and he believed some pretty strange things. He also believed, for instance, that he also, there was this lady, Lizzie Doton, who was a spiritualist, and she claimed to have spoken several of her poems that she wrote under the direct spirit influence of different writers. Like, she would go into a trance and, like... Oh, my God. Give, you know, that was a big thing with a lot of spiritualists, right? Like, they would do that. And she wrote two... She Two of them were poems she claimed came from Poe. And uh, Wallace really liked those poems. In fact, in one of the letters with this guy, he said... If you don't know these poems, you should get a small volume, Poems from the Inner Life by Lizzie Doton, to be had of most dealers in spiritualistic literature. You will find there the streets of Baltimore, a wonderful description of his last hours. This and the Farewell to Earth are, in my opinion, finer and deeper and grander poems than any written by him in the earth life. Though, being given through another brain, they are deficient in the exquisite music and rhythm of his best-known work. And it's long. I don't know. Well, I don't know. But do you want to try reading? This is this spiritualist Edgar Allan Poe poem, Streets of Baltimore, where it's supposedly like him recounting his death. But this is one of her? This is one of these. that. But Wallace also thought this was a Poe poem, a genuine Poe poem. Streets of Baltimore. Woman weak and woman moral, through the spirit's open portal, I would read the Punic record of mine earthly being or I would... Feel that fire returning, which within my soul was burning, when my star was quenched in darkness, set to rise on earth no more, when I sink beneath life burdens in the streets of Baltimore. Ah, those memories sore and sadding. Ah, the night of anguish maddening. When my lone heart suffered shipwreck on a demon-haunted shore, when the fiends grew wild with laughter and silence following after was more awful and appalling than the cannon's deadly roar, than the tramp of mighty armies throw the streets of Baltimore. Like a fiery serpent crawling, like a maelstrom madly bowling, did the flail throng of fury sweep my shuddering spirit over, rushing onward blindly reeling, tortured by intensest feeling like Prometheus when the vultures to his quivering vitals tore, Swift I fled from death and darkness through the streets of Baltimore. No one near to save or love me, no kind face to watch above me, though I heard the sound of footsteps like the waves upon the shore, beating, 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 beating. Now advancing, now retreating, with a dull and dreary rhythm, with a long, continuous roar, heard the sound of human footsteps, in the streets of Baltimore. There at length they find me lying, weak and wildered, sick and dying, and my shattered wreck of being to kindly refuge bore. But my woe was past enduring, and my soul cast off its mooring, crying as I floated onward, I am the earth no more. I have fortified life's blessings in the streets of Baltimore. 
<laughs> Where waste thou, O power eternal, when the fiery fiend infernal beat me with his burning fasces till I sank to rise no more? Oh, was all my lifelong error crowded in that night of terror? Did my spin find expiation, which to judgment went before, summoned to dread tribunal in the streets of Baltimore? Nay, with deep delirious pleasure I had drained my life's full measure, till the fatal fiery serpent fed upon my being's core, then with force and fire volcanic summoning a strength titanic did I burst the bonds that bound me, battered down by being's door, fled the left my shattered dwelling to the dust of Baltimore. <laughs> nice. If I was at... Probably not public. If I was at a, a spiritualist thing and some lady went into a trance and said she was communicating with Edgar Allan Poe and came out with that poem, though, I'd be pretty impressed. I'd be pretty impressed by that, I think. Uh, I don't think he wrote that. I mean, come on. <laughs> but Wallace is missing the obvious the obvious explanation to his problem. He didn't connect his two thoughts. Obviously, what happened is both his brother and James Wickham Riley were spiritualists and communicated with Edgar Allan Poe, but he dictated the same poem to both of them. <laughs> oh, come the, on. It's <laughs> the obvious explanation. <laughs> I don't know, but it's pretty crazy. And like, uh, we've got these, and, and the weird thing is, like I was looking into this, and there's all these Poe, like questionable Poe attributed poems around. If you go, to, I'll put the link up, the website for the Edgar Allan Poe Society of Baltimore. This is like all, it's just like pages. This is like one, two, three, three pages double-sided of a list of apocryphal, doubtful, and rejected Edgar Allan Poe poems. There's so many of these. And in fact, there's one that I ran across in this that only recently, only in 2012, did it finally get rejected. Like, until 2012, this was still considered part of po this other poem. This poem called uh, To Miss Louise Olivia Hunter was accepted as an Edgar Allan Poe poem until 2012. And there was no reason to think that it was, it was not in any manuscript or anything. Someone, like, found it, and it claimed it to be a Poe poem, and it kind of looked like it was in his handwriting. But... Finally, in 2012, someone dug up documents to show that the poem was actually this William Gilmore Sims poems with just some, like, adjustments to it. Huh. But some people still think it was written by... It was. It is actually in Edgar Allan Poe's handwriting and that he wrote it for this valentine to give to this friend of his. But there's not really... But some people think it's just not even in his handwriting. But, you know, it's one of those things. Like, it's hard to identify yeah. people's handwritings, right? <sighs> But until 2012, but then the weird thing, but the other thing is, there is like weird connection because the Louise Olivia Hunter if the, of the title is a real, that the poem is written to, is a real person. And Poe was one of the judges for an 1845 student literary competition that she won. 
So I guess that's like kind of how people propped it up for a while, saying maybe it's really a poem. But then, it, but then someone finally found the document of the real poem that it came from. That happens. Yeah. You know, like the same thing about the Shakespeare poem, that famous the Fawn or whatever. You know, there's like one. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like yeah. Oh, it was the same thing. It was like this found an Elizabethan manuscript attributed to Shakespeare, and you know what I mean. But you get yeah, you get these big authors, and people come out of the woodwork with things. But yeah, I'm telling. You, there's like, I mean, I'll put the link up. There's like this long list of like poems people claim to be Poe poems that are not. I don't know. I kind of like the one that's supposed to be him from the afterlife telling about his death. Well, that's a really crazy story, <laughs> Joseph. I had no idea where it was going. I never knew it was going to come back to Poe in the end. Yeah. So, so you know, and it and it launched someone's career being a hoaxer. This is our second hoax podcast. We nice. had Earn Malley, now we have this. Earn, Earn Malley, and now we have this. So let's do another one Earn on Malley hoax. Was more, well, you know, we still need to do... Um, What's his name? I'm blanking on it. Lord. Fuck. Lord. Chesterton. Is that right? <laughs> Maybe. The famous. He hoaxer. He, he hoaxed those uh, early English poems, and then he killed himself because it it went so badly when it was revealed. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah. That's like probably the most famous one. What about the guy who was like got his doctorate, his PhD, because he hoaxed the. All the poems, like he wrote about this, like ooh, this new author that he, this new poet he had discovered volumes of, and he and he wrote. Well, there's also I don't know. He wrote a whole PhD thesis based on a poet that he had found. I don't know. You gotta you gotta look that one up. I don't know. And he wrote all the poems, and he wrote all the poems that he was referencing in the doctoral thesis. I don't know that. And he got his doctoral thesis by faking it. And we also need to do. But he did it. You know, Ossian. You know that whole thing? There was like, was supposed to be like this early Irish poet, and this guy claimed that he found this manuscript of this early Irish poet and came up with translations of them all. And then I think it was someone big. It might have been like, I don't know, who's the biggest Irish poet we can think of? Like maybe it was like Yeats or something. Uh, asked to see the manuscript. And it it was fake mostly. Like mostly he had made up the poems, but the weird thing is parts of it were from parts of it were from a real manuscript, but it was just very fragmentary. And he just made the rest of it up. Uh but it was really big until that happened, right? Like it got real it was kinda you know, it got to be like a big thing in scholarly work, like this is great, we found this early Irish poet. Uh but yeah, he really made most of it up. <laughs> so there's all these people that yeah, I want to find the one about the guy who got his doctorate degree, but he had made yeah, up had all the poems. That. He had made up all the poems. And then I want to do, but we need some guests for that one. There's all these more modern ones of there. Were, there's been several cases of white poets pretending to be Asian poets and getting things published that way. What? Yeah. And, so, and there's been several cases. It's really fucked up. And it's like... Uh, and it's happened a couple of different times. But there's one more... There, that Both in recent memory. Like, one was in the 90s and one was, like, really recently. Like, in the 2000s. And, uh... But at least one of them, I think, was trying to do a similar thing. Like, they were trying to claim that you couldn't get published if you were white anymore or something. 
and they were trying to do like an experiment, kind of like what uh, Riley was doing in our story here, although in a much, a much more uh, horrible way. But <laughs> but I would like to do something on that. But I think we need some uh, some Asian guests for that one. Okay. But I would like to do that. But yeah, maybe we, we, I think that'd be good. We need to periodically come back to this hoax thing. But it's interesting that, I mean, I guess it kind of gets back into some of the things we always come back to. I guess when you have, anytime you have like a market-driven thing to some extent, that's going to happen, right? Like you get these hoaxes. I think there's more like, hoaxes and I think there's more hoaxes and more poems perhaps attributed to people than, than we might think. Well, yeah, there might be some no one ever found out too, you know? No one ever figured out that they were hoaxes, for sure. Yeah. Huh? But that's that's the story of John Wickham Riley and the posthumous Edgar Allan Poe poem. <laughs> All right, well, I know you got something to get to. You've got to go. Anyone who's in New Orleans, Luna Fett is going on right now, and you were involved in... Uh, in a yeah. project that's going on with that right now, you want to say a little bit about that? Well, it's it's not going to be out. Well, I guess it will be, right? Because it's come out tomorrow. Yeah, it's so. come out tomorrow. So come maybe tomorrow. someone can catch the last day. Or yeah, Saturday, Sunday night. Um, we're going to be doing a. Uh, we're we're using the 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 Piazza Italia. Piazza d'Italia. Yeah. I think yeah. is the right way to say. It. Sorry. <laughs> the Italian Piazza. Uh, down there that was built for the 84 World's Fair. It was finished in 79, I think. And that is some of the best Latin inscription of the whole city. Yeah, it's really cool. It's a super yeah. postmodern, uh, yeah. you know, fountain that's over there attached to the Lowe's. One of the, across from the old one number of the 77. seminal pieces of postmodern architecture. I would say so. It always gets written about when in, in architecture books when they're talking about postmodern architecture. It really does. It does. It gets in there, for sure. And, uh, yeah, where we did a We've been working on this project for like a year, and different people in the crew do different pieces, parts, and everyone plays a role. And uh, we've got we we basically are doing a three song rock opera, and um, it's like a it's like a, a so. But this is something that's going to be put on in full later, and this is like a preview for this it. This is the first part of a, of a whole opera that's going to be done for uh, Mardi Gras. All right. Yeah. Awesome. So that's going to be like a big party. So go out and see that, and then also. Monday evening at 7 o'clock, we push it back a half hour this time, is going to be the second edition of Lucky Bean Poetry Reading at NOCA. Awesome. Just go into the front, turn right. It's in the Ellis Marcellus Jazz Studio, but there'll probably be a sign-up directing you if you're not sure where to go. And past guest Bernard Pierce is going to be the feature reader this time. Boy, and then it's... Nice. Uh, isn't that great? Yeah, so that's going to be cool. And then after that, it's an open mic, so bring some poems to read. Nice. But thank you all for joining this, joining us on this little poetry story tonight. Tonight. It's probably today when you're listening to it, I guess. And we'll see you again next week. See you next week.